Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So even under your own terms of taking seriously the words of the Constitution, the history behind them, you're wrong on some of the biggest questions of the day because you have to look at the 14th Amendment. You're not just looking at what happened in 1789. The full constitutional defense cannot be uh, asserted in the defensive posture. And it could be free speech rights. It could be free exercise of religion rights. It could be Second Amendment rights. If this position is accepted here... Uh, There's a good case. This is a wonderful case for showing both sides. So I'm not sure how to deal with the history. Welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the law and the rule of law in the Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover those things for Slate, and I'm just going to say it. I'm a little bit sick, so this is my voice this week. And what a week it has been. At least seven people who attended the pro-Trump rally on January 6th in Washington, the one that happened right before the insurrection of the Capitol, well, they were elected to public office on Tuesday. Susan Glasser, writing in The New Yorker, recently pointed to a pair of kind of alarming polls. Last January, one CNN poll showed that 75% of Republicans believed Biden was not legitimately elected. But according to the most recent CNN polling, that number has ticked up to 78% of Republicans. Uh, That is being reflected not just in the kind of people who are being elected, not just in voter suppression laws, but in a huge, huge uptick in intimidation and threats against nonpartisan election officials. It's a worry. The Supreme Court also had something of a rock'em sock'em week toggling from arguments in a major abortion case to an even more major gun case within 72 hours. Both of those arguments signal, I think, that whatever else happens, there is going to be a sea change at the high court soon. Keep watching. 
Later on in the show, Slate Plus members will have access to Amicus Behind the Velvet Rope with our very own Mark Joseph Stern, who's going to help me pick over the remains of the things that we didn't get to in the main show. We're going to talk a little bit about a main COVID order from last week, a capital punishment order, and a little bit of gossip about what's going on with Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. If you are not a Slate Plus member, you can always join by going to slate.com slash amicus plus. It is a dollar for your first month. You will never hit a paywall on the website. And you can listen to all of Slate's podcasts free from commercial interruptions and gain access to bonus content like my chats with Mark and extras from shows like The Political Gab Fest and Slow Burn. Check it out at slate.com slash amicus plus. And as always, thank you for supporting the work we do at the magazine. First, let's delve into the arguments on those two great big cases, one concerning abortion, the other guns. I invited an old friend, Elizabeth Wydra, to help us unpack all this. She's president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. It's a think tank law firm action center dedicated to the project of using the original text and purpose and history of the Constitution to achieve progressive outcomes. Elizabeth has filed more than 200 briefs on behalf of the CAC and their clients, including preeminent constitutional scholars and historians, state and local government organizations, groups such as the League of Women Voters and the AARP, and members of Congress. She's argued multiple cases in the federal courts and appears as a legal expert on pretty much every network you could possibly watch. And her work can be found in the New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and of course, right here at at Slate.com. And I was so delighted to welcome her back to the show. Uh, So welcome, first of all, back to Amicus. Thank you. It's so great to be with you. One of the reasons I wanted so much to have you, of all people, on the show is because I feel like it was text in history week. It was to paraphrase Justice Breyer in the gun case, text and history were just flying everywhere. You could, <laughs> if you were not careful, get hit in the eye. With the statute by, of Northampton from... Yeah, you know. <laughs> by text and history. Right. And this is the water you swim in. And I think more than anything, what I wanted to talk about was the ways in which suddenly the thing that you've been working on since I've known you is Mm -hmm. a thing. So let's start with uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center and this vision that you have, which seems quirky, but suddenly seems maybe like a last best hope to root progressive analysis around the Constitution in text and history. In other words, explain the project of using quote-unquote originalism, typically seen as a conservative project, to progressive ends and help us locate some of how we got to this place where that is kind of the only game in town. Those are really fantastic points about how this is the moment we find ourselves in, partly because of the court, You know, we have a 6-3 conservative majority court, and conservatives have at least professed to be rooting their arguments and their jurisprudence in the Constitution. So that's one reason why I think the arguments are important. But I, as you said, this has been (laughs) what the Constitutional Accountability Center and my work has been about for a long time. And that's because we've been fed the wrong story by conservatives when it comes to the Constitution. 
partly because of what we learn in school. You think of the Constitution about being these old white guys with wigs in Philadelphia. But really, the Constitution is a much longer and much more complicated story than that. And in so many ways, the Constitution that we all live under, and especially the parts of the Constitution that most of us like, that's from what we call the second founding, which is what happened to the Constitution after the Civil War, when we took away the original sin of slavery from the text of our Constitution by passing the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. We passed the 14th Amendment, which answered the question that the 13th Amendment posed of, well, what does it mean to be free? And in the 14th Amendment, we protected equality and liberty and tried to create some measure of meaningful justice. And then the amendments that were passed after that, that protected voting rights, that expanded what our democracy looked like. And throughout all of this, those of us who were excluded from the promise of the founding in the 1700s really wrote ourselves into the words of the Constitution. And the progress that was pushed forward by these generations of activists and abolitionists and people looking for liberation, we wrote a constitution that pushes our country and our national charter along an arc of progress. Now, I think it's important to say that even as we democratized and made our constitution freer and fairer and more equal and more just, many of these promises have never come to fruition for far too many people. We could talk about reconstruction history forever and the roots of what we're seeing today, how they lie in a lot of the way that the the promise of the post-Civil War constitutional amendments were denied to people through really white supremacist actions from the powers that be, including the Supreme Court. But nonetheless, these promises of equality and meaningful justice and inclusion are in the Constitution because of the changes that we made to it through our efforts over time. And so much of the conservative story would have you believe that our Constitution is limited. It's about property rights. It's about limiting what the government can do. It's about negative rights. And this story of equality and inclusion is not told by conservative originalists. The 14th Amendment does not feature prominently in most conservative originalism. And that is a mistake even on their own terms. And that's part of what we at CAC do when we make arguments to conservative judges and justices like we have now in the Supreme Court. So even under your own terms of taking seriously the words of the Constitution, the history behind them, You're wrong on some of the biggest questions of the day because you have to look at the 14th Amendment. You're not just looking at what happened in 1789. We're looking at where we are today. And that's part of what we do in the courts. But then I think there's also a real power to rooting progressive demands for change in the Constitution because we're not asking you to be nice and give us these things. We're saying we're owed them. You know, if you look at the history on the 14th Amendment, especially on racist policing, we are owed the right to walk the streets freely and free from racist brutality, from 
state-sanctioned actions, whether it's from the police or other officers of the state. We are owed these things by the Constitution, (laughs) by the blood, sweat, tears, and lives given to enshrine these protections and guarantees in the Constitution. And so I think that there's a real power in saying, you know, you we've already been promised this, and we're coming to make good on those promises. And I think it also roots this idea of, in some ways, really radical equality and liberty in the most American thing of all, which is the American Constitution. And so we try to reclaim the Constitution from these erroneous conservative stories and a cramped vision of the Constitution, and instead talk about the way that it really can be a tool for justice and a tool for liberation. I'm so glad you said that last bit, because I think for too long, progressives have been tarred with the feelings ball construction of, oh, it's all blah, blah, penumbras, and what's in your heart, and are you kind, whatever living constitutionalism is. And I know you're not per se, making an argument against it. But whatever it is, it just feels so molassesy and elusive. And then it gets really recast as unprincipled. And I think what you're saying is, this was always a vision that said, we're not going to succumb to the critique that we just want what the judge wants that morning when he wakes up or she wakes up and they're brushing their teeth. What we want actually predates much of this conversation because what we want is enshrined in the text and purpose of the actual founding document. And I think it's really important because even this week, as I listen to argument, there are still filaments of this critique of y'all are just making it up as you go along. You know, Roe is rooted in arid soil. It's all just, you really heard it from Jonathan Mitchell, the architect of SB8, that, you know, judges faked this right, and they've been faking us all out, and then they've been faking other judges into believing it, and I'm here to give you truth with a capital T. And what you're saying is not falling prey to that critique that this is all about what a judge eats for breakfast in the morning and feels to be right. Yeah, it's not. The right protected in row is not some airy right that was just made up. Would I have maybe written it a little bit different? Probably. I think probably if we had some women on the court, they probably would have written it different back then too. But the right that's enshrined in Roe is unquestionably part of the liberty in the 14th Amendment. And, you know, you talk about history, like one of the things that we do a lot and I think is really helpful when you think about what the equality that was protected by the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment means is that the committee that was drafting this were reacting to the horrors of slavery and the way that enslaved persons were denied the most fundamental aspects of humanity. Look, I'm a constitution nerd, okay? But like one of the things I love about the way our constitution is written is that you can read the story through the amendments, you know? So you see the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. And then you read the 14th Amendment and said, well, what does it mean to be a free person? What does it mean to be equal in this country? And one of the things that they talked about was the horrors in which enslaved people were treated when it comes to making basic decisions about, do you want to have a family? Do you want to bear a child? The ability to 
create your own family on your own terms was something that was discussed at length by those who drafted the 14th Amendment. Now, did they use the word abortion? No, I don't want to, you know, but the idea that the decision about whether to bear a child, which was discussed, because as we know, certainly enslaved women did not have their ability to object to control their own reproductive capacity. Children were torn away from their parents. That is one of the central horrors of the slave power was the ability to brutally deny those privileges and rights to enslaved people. And so when they talked about the ability to decide for oneself whether or not to have a family, in the same way that the right to speak also includes the right not to speak, the right to control for yourself, including not to have a child, is implicit in the bodily autonomy and equality that was protected by the 14th Amendment. And, you know, again, I think this is one way where it might have changed a little bit if there were some women who wrote on the court, and not just in a privacy sense, although I think that's absolutely true in the extent that Roe talks about privacy means that you can make those fundamental decisions for yourself, but also just equality. How can you show up as an equal being in the public square if you cannot make fundamental decisions about your own reproductive capacity. So it's implicated in liberty, it's implicated in equality, both of which are protected in the very words of the 14th Amendment. We're going to pause now to hear about some of our sponsors on the show. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at So let's talk first about abortion. In a weird way, this week highlighted a a strange—it goes exactly to your original framing, right? We've got a half-century-old right to abortion that's being dismissed as a, you know, gnat on a flea on a speck on the wall, not— at all serious. And then this relatively new reading of the Second Amendment that had actually been read immutably not uh, until Heller. We didn't get to this idea of an ind- individual, right? And that is being weighted down with, you know, this historic, oh, no, this isn't just that it goes back to, you know, the founding. This goes back to, to as you said, you know, Northampton. This goes back to, you know, Adam and Eve in the Bible. And so there's a weird paradox in the ways that history inflects both those conversations because, One of them is seen as having been an immutable right forever, even though it's fairly recent. The other is seen as being a completely trivial, even though for 50 years, partly because the center has been filing briefs in it. I know listeners are familiar. This is the Texas law that went into effect in September. It functionally ends all abortion in the state of Texas after six weeks because it has this novel scheme where no state actor participates in enforcing the ban, but every citizen uh, across the country can win a $10,000 minimum bounty for bringing civil suits. Now, the court originally declined to enjoin this with this inscrutable uh, shadow docket order, and then on a dime, turned around, ordered briefing and argument, 
on just a jurisdictional question on Monday. And I wonder if you can just sketch out, there were two different arguments over three hours, because you're a constitution nerd, you cop to it. Can you sketch out these very, very technical issues in the two cases? Yeah. So the cases that were just argued are about questions related to process, but they get to the heart of the matter in a way that I think a lot of process questions don't. Because SB8, as you said, prohibits most abortions basically after six weeks when many people don't even know that they're pregnant. But it has this unusual mechanism to it, which is that it outsources enforcement of that law to private individuals who can bring a suit against abortion providers, against people accessing abortion. And anyone can sue them for a minimum of $10,000. And even if, like, let's say the abortion provider won in one case, that doesn't, under the law, SB8, have any preclusive effect. So you can get sued over and over and over and over and over for this $10,000 at least potential fine. They did that because SB8 is clearly unconstitutional under Supreme Court precedent. And there's also Supreme Court precedent that says that the way you enjoin a law is you sue the state officials who are carrying out that law. So you can't just go into court and like sue SB8. (laughs) You have to sue the person who is carrying out SB8. The folks who wrote the Texas law knew this, so that's why they had this private enforcement mechanism trying to evade judicial review of the law. The abortion providers in Texas whose actions to provide abortion access have been unquestionably chilled by SB8, even as they're trying to litigate the right to abortion in that state, have been trying to bring suit, but they have been thwarted because of this new scheme for enforcement that is specifically there to thwart court review. And so the first argument that came to the Supreme Court is from these abortion providers. And they have sought to sue a couple state officials, I think most importantly, clerks of the court. So when you file a lawsuit against someone, you send in your complaint And the clerk of the court dockets it. And it's a very ministerial duty. You know, they don't sit there and think, is this a good complaint? They just docket it. And so the providers are saying that it's totally appropriate to basically stop the unconstitutional effects of SB8 by telling clerks they can't docket any private lawsuit seeking to enforce SB8. And this involves a precedent called Ex Parte Young. I know a lot of my friends who are not lawyers listen to the arguments and were like, Ex Parte Young? Uh, It's a 1908 case, and like many uh, Supreme Court cases from that era, involve railroads. Railroads were like a major source of constitutional development. It's kind of bizarre, but like we have a lot of early cases that come from railroads. And it talks about how, look, even though there's this doctrine that says you can't sue a state to stop an unconstitutional law, you can sue state actors because otherwise we would have clearly unconstitutional acts and no way to stop them. And getting back to what we're talking about, the 14th Amendment and the way that it changed the Constitution, 
one of the main things the 14th Amendment was intended to do was to stop states from running roughshod over constitutional rights. Prior to the 14th Amendment, there really was no federal protection against states violating fundamental rights that were protected against federal infringement. And so what this SB8 argument from the abortion providers is all about is, is there a way that the courts can stop a clearly unconstitutional law from going to effect, not even on the merits, but just while they hash out the ultimate decisions in the case? And to me, it did seem like the justices, including some conservative justices, Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, um, as well, of course, as some of the more liberal justices like Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, were clearly troubled by the possibility that you could have, you know, somewhat novel scheme that, as Justice Kagan said, dripping with sarcasm, some geniuses in Texas came up with so they could try to get away with this totally unconstitutional abortion restriction. Even those conservative justices seemed troubled by the fact that you could exploit a loophole in Ex parte Young, which says you can't stop a case before a judge because, you know, you don't want to really interfere in that way with state judicial proceedings, that you could exploit that loophole to let an unconstitutional law go free from any federal court review. So that was really interesting. And we saw questions from Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Roberts seeming to understand that point and seeming to understand that it's troubling. Again, this is more about process, about whether you can get that review of an unconstitutional abortion restriction. Later in the term, we'll be talking about the Dobbs case, which raises squarely whether the Roe precedent and right will remain good law. But, you know, this case is important, obviously, for abortion rights, as you mentioned the right to access abortion has been denied in the state of Texas while SB8 is allowed to go into effect. It's troubling clearly for that reason. It's also troubling for what it could mean in other cases. And this is where it seemed like maybe some of the conservative justices were troubled because if you can pass an unconstitutional law but get around any judicial review in federal courts by outsourcing the enforcement of it to private individuals, you know, you could see that happen in states that want to have stricter gun control. So we're also going to talk about the gun case. Let's say even the Supreme Court says, you know, you can't have laws like the one in New York that restricts concealed carry in public places. But if they don't do the right thing in the SV8 case, then New York could say, okay, we're going to pass the same law, but we're going to have private people be able to bring lawsuits that say, hey, I see this guy with a gun. I don't think he has proper cause and enforce it that way. And so, you know, uh, some commentators said, ironically, it could be gun rights that save abortion rights in the SBA case. I think it's a little more complicated than that. But I do think the idea that the mechanism for enforcement in the SBA case could be used in other contexts of rights is incredibly troubling. It was troubling enough to gun rights supporters that we had a brief from gun rights supporters. But I see it more being troubling in the context of racial justice. There was a fantastic brief from the NAACP LDF that pointed out the clear parallels there. And I think it gets back, honestly, to your intro to bracket some of what's happening today. But we can't really bracket that because, you know, as we're seeing increased intimidation, as we're seeing, you know, the insurrection and a lot of that anxiety, I think, is 
behind some of the grave concerns about outsourcing these laws to vigilantes. And there's an environment that's present right now shot through with anxiety and laws like this really ratchet that up in a way that affects fundamental rights. Let's listen to Justice Kavanaugh saying exactly the thing that you just said, both connecting the two cases this week, abortion and guns, but also making the point that if we let Texas get away with this party trick, it's going to be deployed against Second Amendment rights holders in other contexts. Can I ask you about the <clears throat> implications of your position for other constitutional rights, the amicus uh, brief of the firearms um, uh, policy coalition says, quote, this will easily become the model for suppression of other constitutional rights with Second Amendment rights being the most likely targets, end quote. And it could be free speech rights. It could be free exercise of religion rights. It could be Second Amendment rights. If this position is accepted here, the theory of the amicus brief is that it can be easily replicated in other states that disfavor uh, other constitutional rights. Let's also listen to Amy Coney Barrett making the other point I think you just made, which is, what does it mean if a defendant cannot raise the full constitutional holding of abortion and cannot assert that defense in court? I'm wondering if, in a defensive posture in state court, the constitutional defense can be fully aired. And I'm wondering that for this reason, the statute says that a defendant may not establish an undue burden, and this is even assuming that the defendant can satisfy third-party standing rules because the statute says it has to be Craig versus Boren, not the regular abortion um, third-party standing rules. But it says that a defendant may not establish an undue burden under this section by, and this is D2 in this section, arguing or attempting to demonstrate that an award of relief against other defendants or other potential defendants will impose an undue burden on women seeking an abortion. So I take that to mean that a defendant can only say an award against me would place a substantial obstacle. And that's not the full constitutional holding of either Whole Women's Health or June Medical. It's looking at the law as a whole and its deterrent effect. Do you read that the same way? I I completely agree, Your Honor. So if that's the case, the full constitutional defense cannot be uh, asserted in the defensive posture. So those are the two justices. You mentioned Chief Justice Roberts, who used the word bounty, uh, by the way. It's the first time we'd heard a conservative justice use that word. But they're all expressing very different flavors of the same concern, either about Supreme Court supremacy in Roberts' case. You know, if you come after me, the blue states are going to come after us in Kavanaugh's case. Or do we really want courts to be sidelined in ways that would preclude people from effectuating their rights. All three of those concerns in some ways go to this question of the court has to get the last word, that people have to respect the court. And I wondered if you could talk just for a minute about the sort of 333 court that we are now seeing. And it's not, I think, some of the stories that were told last term that that's a 3-3-3 court because it's three liberals, three moderates, and three conservatives. It's not that. It's six conservatives, but three conservatives who really do think about institutions and the long game and the primacy of the court. Is that what you saw played out this week? So 
Yes and no. <laughs> I think that, you know, part of what we're seeing is the reaction of the conservative legal movement to a six-justice conservative majority. And so bringing arguments that are really extreme and in some cases not great legal arguments, thinking that now they have six conservative justices who will be willing to go along with this. So I think in some ways what we're seeing is several justices pushing back on that a little in many ways, I think because of some of the institutional concerns that you're talking about, even if they might be sympathetic to the ends of those arguments, you have to come to them with better arguments to get there. That's part of what we're seeing. You know, as we've been talking about with SB8, it, it's really problematic, especially from the perspective of a federal judge, to think that states across the country can pass laws that are totally in violation of federal court precedent and federal judges not being able to do anything about it. I think that part of it is that some of these conservative legal activists are being a little too clever by half, but there are some justices who are willing to go along with it. And, you know, as we look at the 333, I think you can guess what the threes are. But I think also we will know a lot more about how the court shakes out after some of these cases. The questions from Justice Barrett have been interesting and the questions from Justice Kavanaugh have been interesting, but the proof will be the way the votes shake out. As a court watcher, you never want to make predictions after <laughs> oral arguments, um, but Justice Alito seems pretty down to do whatever Texas wants in the cases before him. Other justices like Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Barrett seem to be a little more concerned. So I think we'll see the way in which some of these potential overreaches from conservative legal activists are taken or not. But whether they are, this is unmistakably a very, very conservative court. And, you know, in cases that are less high profile, um, they are shifting the law in very conservative directions. I'm thinking of, for example, the Cedar Point case from last term, which is about labor and takings law. And even just me saying that, some of your listeners are probably like snooze. And that's exactly why they, you know, probably are not as worried about shifting the law in, in an unprecedented, unwarranted, and really radically conservative direction. But if they do it with abortion rights, if they do it with the ability to review patently unconstitutional state laws, everyone's paying attention. It's so interesting because you're making a point that I really struggled with over the two months that SB8 was in effect, which is nothing has changed. So the misgivings we were hearing this week from Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh don't reflect anything changing on the ground. This kind of novel scheme that was so complicated that the justices said in this very, very inscrutable late night order, oh, it's so complicated that probably nobody, you know, can prevail at trial is the same scheme. What changed is public outcry. What changed is, you know, these tanking poll numbers and the public looking around and saying, shadow ducket, that's a thing. And so I think it goes to 
this overreach that you're describing that is really important. You know, I keep thinking in a strange way, the term opened with, it was like the buffet table at Circus Circus. And, you know, you had like Justice Thomas and Justice Alito just stuffing themselves on the eclairs and the like, all you can eat shrimp and like going like, do more, more, more. And Jonathan Mitchell, who, you know, was the architect of SB8, who was in court on Monday, just, you know, literally like downing the entire salad bar in one go. Sorry, I might be hungry. But I think there's a weird way in which just the unseemliness of it. At one point at argument on Monday, Chief Justice Roberts kind of spanked the Solicitor General of Texas for something that was in Jonathan Mitchell's brief. And the Solicitor General was like, I'm not going to defend that crazy talk about states, you know, have a prerogative to interpret constitutional law as they see fit. So there is a weird kind of circus circus versus like, let's just go to like Red Robin and like order off the menu and not be crazy people dynamic that's at play. And it's interesting to see Barrett and Kavanaugh. As I said, nothing changes on the ground, but boy, the, the the tone changed. And I think some of that is performative to say we are soberly looking at this thing that we couldn't be bothered to look at in September. And part of it is error correction. We made a huge mistake by pretending no one would care. And now we're going to pretend like we care. But that brings us to Dobbs. And you've already mentioned one really essential thing that I wanted to probe, which is the the center has done yeoman's work, and I would commend to people, David Gans, I think, has a piece this week in The Atlantic talking about just the details of what you are describing, that chattel slavery and bodily autonomy, particularly on women, was very much a part of thinking about the crafting of the 14th Amendment and to say nobody was thinking about women and their bodies and reproductive rights and families at the time. This is just imported in the penumbras, you know, in the 1970s, really elides what you are describing as actual text in history. Having said that, One of the things the center has been arguing, and I think this is also getting missed in the sort of whirlwind, is the extent to which it's not just Roe v. Wade and Casey that's on the hook. That if you start to say, oh, no states protected abortion uh, when the 14th Amendment was ratified, therefore nothing that wasn't, you know, written in stone at the time is protectable. Can you just talk briefly about what else is in the crosshairs if we start to do away with the idea that what was codified in in Griswold, in Roe, in Casey, in Obergefell, if all that is just nonsense that can be swept away? You're exactly right. The 14th Amendment uses broad words. And the first thing we have to do as people who are interpreting and when judges apply the law is look at the words because that's what's the law. They're sweeping words of the 14th Amendment, equal protection of the law, due process. And when we look at what was meant by that exactly, we look at the concerns about the ways in which fundamental decision-making about the most important facets of your life were denied during chattel slavery. And the rights that are protected in that very broad concept of fundamental liberty include rights that we have seen protected by the Supreme Court, including the right to marry the person whom you love, protected in Obergefell in the marriage equality cases, the right to decide, again, 
whether, when, if to have a child protected in the abortion cases, but also in the cases that protect against state restrictions on contraception. And even, I would say, the right to marry a person of a different race that was protected by the Supreme Court in Loving. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a fear monger. I'm saying that because Jonathan Mitchell, who we've already talked about as one of the major proponents of SB8, he has suggested that in his own briefing. And in in people who are on that side of the SB8 case are suggesting that some of these cases, like the ones I just mentioned, also could fall if there is a reimagining of the right in row. And one of the things that I hear a lot when I talk about the Constitution to folks who aren't constitutional lawyers, and I love talking to folks who are not constitutional lawyers about the Constitution, but one of the things that frustrates me is when they say, well, the word abortion or the word healthcare or word X is not in the Constitution. That's not how the Constitution works. It's not, you know, a recipe with lists of ingredients. Um, you know, you talk about things like equality. And then, of course, what we do is we fight over what the meaning of equality is. So the fact that the word isn't there is 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 something different. And, you know, to bridge the main topics of this term, one of the other things that was included in the kind of 14th Amendment drafters of the idea of this fundamental right to decide for yourself, the fundamental right to have your home and your family of your own choosing. And again, I think implicit in that is the right to choose not to have those things, was ironically some protection for the right to have a gun in your home for self-defense. The drafters of the 14th Amendment knew that Black Americans were not being protected by a lot of the white supremacist local authorities, particularly in the southern states, but it wasn't just limited to there. And so there was an idea that that part of freedom and liberty was having the ability to protect yourself from, in that instance, racist terrorism. It's really ironic that a lot of this history is being talked about in the Supreme Court in some ways that are not particularly nuanced and not rooted in the whole story of the 14th Amendment. But it does get to some of the problems with looking to history because, you know, that's why it's important to start with the words when it comes to abortion rights. We look at what equal and what um, the ideas of liberty protected in the 14th Amendment mean. And with the gun rights case and the Second Amendment cases, they kind of don't ever really talk about (laughs) the words so much. You know, there is this idea of bare arms means to carry them around. But you got to be careful when you look at history, because as was demonstrated in the gun arguments, there are really good arguments on the side of those who look to history and find gun regulations. I think like the Scalia idea that all history suggests this broad right to carry a gun um, is not true. Even Scalia recognized that regulations that cover sensitive places like schools um, and so forth can stand under even his broad reading of the Second Amendment. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Let's return to our conversation with Elizabeth Wydra. She's president of the Constitutional Accountability Center, and she's taking us through the two big, big cases at the court this past week concerning the Texas abortion ban known as SB8 and that Second Amendment case that had the justices reaching for their history books, just not all the same history books. 
guns are, I mean, this is right in your wheelhouse, my friend. This is, for reasons maybe you can explain to me, this has become the land where the historians run free. I mean, for some reason, more than almost anything else, I think, you know, I'm remembering after in 2008 when the court decided Heller, which was, as we said, the first time that the court really asserted that there's an, you know, individual right in the Second Amendment to own guns in your home for your own protection. And then, you know, that was incorporated against the States two years later in McDonald. But in my head, it's this like sepia toned, there's people in cowboy hats, there's framers, I guess that's in black and white, although maybe something else. But it's just been completely given over to the historians. And that's partly because, as you said, Justice Scalia, his opinion in Heller, Justice Stevens' dissent in Heller, were just so rooted in looking at these questions of history that everything else almost fell away. And we'll talk in a minute about what happens when you kind of let everything else fall away. But I wonder if you have a theory about why guns became the place where 100% of the playing field at this point is historians battling historians. It's strange to me. Do you have a theory? It is a little weird. And I think partly it's because, as you mentioned, the idea that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to have a gun is something that is newly recognized in the court. The court previously thought that that was basically a fraudulent type of argument. So I think partly because there isn't a lot of great constitutional history with respect to the Second Amendment particularly on the individual right to have a gun, there is this historical idea built up around it. And ironically, the place where you do see some constitutional history for a right to have a gun comes in the context of the 14th Amendment and the ideas of the privileges and immunities of citizenship. I think to me, like the context matters. Like people say, who cares? Um, But, you know, the idea of why it was protected in the 14th Amendment was, as I said, because there were people who could not look to the authorities to protect them. Because there were people who had been enslaved who, when they went to exercise their freedom, were being terrorized by the authorities and could not look to them for help. In fact, the authorities were the ones who were coming after them. So the Second Amendment might be about militias and the collective right. The 14th Amendment is about individuals trying to protect themselves against racist militias. So, you know, I think that context does matter when we think about restrictions and the way in which the right can be regulated. And what's clear when you look to history is that there have been regulations of this right. It's hard to rely entirely on history because, you know, as was brought up in the arguments, a lot of the laws that are not being challenged by folks in the gun rights community, like prohibiting people who've been convicted of a felony from carrying a gun or however they define people with mental illness not being able to carry a gun. Those restrictions usually are not challenged by the gun rights folks, but those laws really came around in like the 1920s. So, you know, if we're like, oh, you have to finish your historical analysis in the 18th century, well then what? So the history I think has been actually pretty bad and 
I think part of the reason why gun rights folks have cloaked themselves in it so much is because they want to limit themselves to the Second Amendment and this idea of standing up against tyrannical authoritarian government and not looking at the more complex history of the constitutional intent, however limited that might be to protect an individual right. We haven't heard a case since 2010. The court has been batting away lots of cases. These have been percolating away in the lower courts. And suddenly, bang, Amy Coney Barrett comes on the court and suddenly it's buffet time. This actually, in some ways, feels like a narrow case because it's this century-old New York state licensing law. But it's also a very, very broad case and was very broadly presented by Paul Clement at Oral Arguments. So can you just tell us where we've pivoted now from guns in the home for self-protection in Heller to what is being sought here? Yeah, so the New York law prohibits the carrying of guns, concealed carry in public places, unless you get a permit. And that permit requires you to show proper cause in most cases. You know, for example, if you want to have a gun for self-defense, you have to show, you know, that there is like an actual and articulable rather than speculative potential harm that you're seeking to defend yourself against. So you can't just say generally, I think I live in a dangerous neighborhood. I need a gun for self-defense. But, you know, the interesting thing about this case is that even the two individuals who are challenging the New York law, they got a permit to have a gun for hunting and target practice. They just are not able to conceal carry a gun in all the places that they want. So a lot of the discussion was about the facts of the case. And I think you're right that the gun rights folks are trying to present this as a complete ban on carrying a gun outside the home for self-defense in a concealed carry fashion. And so they argue that it gets to the fundamental heart of the right. The other side is saying, no, we're just kind of regulating that right in a way that is totally appropriate. And so I think what really will get to the conclusion of the court is whether they see this law as subsuming the individual right to have a gun for self-defense or whether they see it as kind of regulating the means in which you can exercise that right. You mentioned, and I think we both agree, that even though Heller in 2008 was really deeply lashed to historical analysis, there's been an immense amount of work done since to suggest that some of that historical analysis was pretty shoddy. And one of the things that we saw uh, on Wednesday in oral argument was Paul Clement on behalf of the gun groups and these two individuals who want to be able to concealed carry wherever they go. Um, Very, very broad historical claims. This is where we get to the 14th century statutes about, you know, whether you can go to the fair with a gun. First of all, let's just listen because it's fun. Here's Justice Breyer just drowning in the constitutional history. In McDonald, we had professors of history ran departments from the English Civil War, and they all said the history in Heller was wrong. You've read the briefs here. I don't know. You read the briefs of the historian of the Air Force? And she says it's this way, and the other one says it's the other way. How are we supposed to deal with that? Uh, There's a good case. This is a wonderful case for showing both sides. So I'm not sure how to deal with the history. 
And I wonder if you have some kind of limiting principle on how we even look at this history, because by the end of the argument, it was clear that Paul Clement was saying, you know, oh, the Western states are different, and also Arkansas is different, and all the states allowed this except the states that didn't. And it felt as though... Given that we have Kavanaugh and Barrett making claims about all we care about is the history, that's what should control here. How do we sort through the history? Because it felt as though we were being buried in it and that justices are not necessarily well situated to pick and choose. First of all, it shouldn't just be about the history. But even if it were just about the history, that's pretty hard because, as I said, there's history that, yes, shows that there were places where, you know, the individual right to have a gun was less restricted. But there were also instances where it was, including in 14th century England about whether you could bring your sidearm if you weren't one of the king's servants in his presence out and about. And so, you know, even looking to England, there is history that goes to both sides. So I think what's really important is to look at the constitutional right protected and Look at the nature of that right and have the history inform that, thinking about what is the purpose of the constitutional protection and what are the values enshrined in that constitutional protection. You know, and the justices, I think, don't want to acknowledge this, but they do implicitly. Obviously, there are just some fundamental facts about this right that involves a gun. That's why they say restrictions that go to sensitive places like schools are permissible. That's not from 14th century England. That's from having an application of the right in modern society. So you already mentioned the provision in Heller where Justice Scalia does exactly what you've just described, right? This famous line in Heller, which keeps getting read out, quote, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings, courthouses, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. So Scalia clearly lays down a marker that we're not talking about guns for everyone everywhere. That kind of slides away in oral arguments. But then we're left with, okay, now we are making real-world decisions not about the king's guards in England who had, like, whatever their fancy sidearm at the time was, but about actual people in actual stadiums with actual military weapons of war. And then you start to get this very funny, you know, again, we have to listen to Justice Breyer, who's worrying about, you know, drunk people at stadiums. I think that people of good moral character who start drinking a lot and who may be there for a football game or, or some kind of soccer game can get pretty angry at each other. And if they each have a concealed weapon, who knows? And there are plenty of statistics in these briefs to show there are some people who do know. And a lot of people end up dead. Okay? So, are, what are we supposed to do? To sort of float around? like with NYU, and say, uh, hey, oh, this is the rule. It seems to work out in upstate New York. We don't know, of course, and we do know that your client is carrying a concealed weapon because he has a right to in some instances, and uh, even following Heller and following the history, which I thought was wrong, uh, even so, what are we supposed to say, in your opinion, that is going to be clear enough that we will not produce a kind of uh, 
gun-related chaos. And then we do get to these very, very strange colloquies where we're talking about maybe on NYU, but not on the Columbia, you know, campus, maybe in the subway, maybe not in the subway, maybe, you know, the ball drop at Times Square is too much for Amy Coney Barrett. Can't we just say Times Square on New Year's Eve is a sensitive place because now we've seen, you know, people are on top of each other. We've, we've had experience with violence. So we're making the judgment. It's a sensitive place. And this seems like absolutely the wrong way to be deciding constitution. It's as much cherry picking and subjective and situational as what we just talked about in terms of cherry picking history. So it felt to me as though we were making two sets of very bad choices about how to analyze this case. We're either going to talk about situations that I may be in, in which I don't want people to have guns, that's the the stadium analogy, or bad history, wrought badly by bad historians. That's equally shoddy, it seems to me, craftsmanship for a jurist, right? Well, and, and you know, and then who who really is in the best position to make those decisions? And if you concede that the right can be regulated, should there be deference afforded to policymakers who are probably better suited? I mean, look, I am a constitutional expert. I'm not an expert in the workings of firearms. I probably used the wrong terms a few times. I'm not here to give you the breakdown of the particulars on guns. I'm here to talk about the Constitution. I think a lot of the justices are probably, unless they have some unknown background, (laughs) in the same place. And so when legislatures pass these regulations, they can have subject matter experts come in and talk to them about the way that these regulations can be most effective in reaching the goals of balancing public safety with individual rights. But, you know, you talk about how some of these real-life factors slid away in the argument. And they do at certain points, but then they definitely come back in. You know, so as we were talking about, it's both a broad case and a potentially narrow case because the gun rights folks are thrilled if the Supreme Court goes in the direction of making it a broad case. But they also have a backup position, which uh, Paul Clement argued for them in the court, which is to say, you know, look, this is just about this law. This is just about whether, you know, showing proper cause in this particular application is unconstitutional. So you don't have to get to whether laws that regulate sensitive places are potentially unconstitutional. You don't have to get to other instances and you can just rule on this narrow uh, potentially, you know, like, is it, does it make sense to have someone decide what proper cause is? Is that appropriate? There are really ways in which this could be narrowed substantially from a very broad pro-gun stance. It's funny because I didn't want to say goodbye before listening to Justice Alito, whose immense solicitude for the office cleaners of New York who are on the subways, who can't arm themselves to protect themselves, even though the bad guys have arms. Let's listen to him for just a second. There are a lot of armed people uh, on the streets of New York and in the subways late at night right now, aren't there? I don't know that there are a lot of armed people. No? How many people with illegal guns? If yeah, that's, that's what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. How many illegal guns were seized by the by the New York Police Department uh, last year? Do you, have, do you have any idea? 
I don't have that number, but I'm sure there's a, it's a substantial number. But the people, all, all these people with illegal guns, they're on the subway. They're walking know. around the streets. But the ordinary, hardworking, law-abiding people I mentioned, no, they can't be armed. You know, one of the things that I was thinking is how much empathy Justice Alito has for some kinds of people, whereas, you know, pregnant teenagers in Texas who have been molested by a family member and can't procure an abortion seem to elicit no empathy at all. And I wonder just to like end where we began, one of the things that you push for when you talk about text and history and meaning and purpose is to really filter all of this out, that the justices' subjective feelings about who is worthy of their solicitude, their compassion, and their empathy, and who is not, is also not a useful benchmark to decide cases, and that Justice Alito sees those people walking around in New York gunless who need to be armed in the subway he doesn't see other people who are equally, I think, as worthy of his compassion. And that's why compassion should not figure here at all. And that what you're trying to do at the center and what you're pressing for is something that looks neutral and objective, but it gets us out of this really, I think, dangerous moment we're in where the justices are deciding cases based on their feelings as well. Yeah, I don't want my rights to be based on whether or not Justice Alito has empathy for my exercise of those rights. That gets us in a huge amount of trouble. And and on the other side as well, you know, I'm a progressive. We have progressive justices who have blind spots. We do not want our rights to be decided based on who the justices can empathize with, who they have compassion for, whether it's for progressives or conservatives. I want them to give me the rights that I've promised in the Constitution, which fortunately are broad and sweeping. And if they were actually given to all of us, according to how the whole Constitution, as we have amended it over time to make it more equal and more just and more inclusive, envisioned those rights, that would make me pretty happy. I want a Supreme Court that is more reflective of the diversity of America, period, but partly to point out some of those blind spots of other justices from all sides of the ideological spectrum and to make sure that when we're applying the Constitution, we're not just applying it based on people who look like us or live in our neighborhoods or go to whatever country club we go to, because <laughs> that's not it. That shouldn't be it. And I hope it isn't. Elizabeth Wydra is president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. It's a think tank law firm and action center dedicated to the project of using the original text, purpose, and history of the Constitution to achieve progressive outcomes. Thank you so very, very much, more than I can say, for getting us through this really thickety week um, with your usual crystal clarity and grace. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Dahlia. So great to be with you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. And thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. Till then, hang on in there.